Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. How do you define done? When do you know your code is ready for production? Is your code barely worthy of your mama's fridge? Or is it refined? but not quite Emily Post refined? Or would it make Uncle Bob proud? In this episode, we're talking about best practices and the definition of done. We'll discuss several different scenarios and degrees of being done with your code, whether you're working on a small task or starting a whole new project. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, I have been playing a lot with Dapper, I'm liking it more and more because it just is like, I'd forgotten how much it stays out of my way. Mm-hmm. Man, I really like these lightweight ORMs now, especially when you deal with the other kind. Because like I can make a change and I can even have unit tests around like how my app talks to the database. And I know that's like technically an integration test, but I can make sure stuff goes in and comes out and it's the same. Yeah. And I could do those little tests with a transaction rollback. And there's nothing sitting there going, oh, well, you got to use SQLite and you completely recreate your database before every transaction. It's like, no, 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 no. You just do a transaction and then you roll it back when you're done. It's so simple. It's glorious. I love it. Other than that, I'm not going to say things are easy right now. I've got a lot of work on my plate, but uh, it's all going the same direction. Like, I don't feel like I'm flailing around like I did, you know, a week or two ago. Things are good. How about you? I have been sick. It's been a rough week. Uh, we didn't record last week because I didn't have much of a voice. And so we're, we're doubling up tonight. So before I got sick, we went to the grand opening of Wheeler's Raid. That's a distillery in Nolansville right near Mill Creek where uh, Amanda works. That was fun because one of Amanda's former co-workers from Mill Creek is managing the bar there. So it was really cool. I hadn't seen him in uh, in a little while. So it was fun to go in, say hi, hang out a little bit. What little I got to talk to him because the place was packed. They also had a stage with a band. I'll tell you, what's really, really cool is going in there and I didn't realize how many people from Nolansville I had met at Mill Creek over the months that Amanda and I have been dating and I've been going in and visiting her because. We go in there and just like so many people just came up and were like, BJ, hey, where's Amanda? Because I went over before she got done working. So I was like, oh, she's on her way. And you know, then when she was there, people coming up and saying hi to us. It was just like really cool, especially for an outgoing extrovert like me. Though I will say I have realized that uh, my girlfriend is more extroverted than I am. Which, yeah, Will's eyes just got really big. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I thought there was an asymptote there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting being the introverted one in the relationship. This is the first time in my life that's ever happened. It's a nice little change. I'm just... That's really cool. Yeah. I'm still processing <laughs> that. <laughs> How somebody gets more extroverted than you. Oh, yeah. It's possible. Well, it exists. And I found her and I'm dating her, so... That's really awesome. Honestly, sometimes I don't want to go out and she does and she drags me out. And of course, I end up having a great time because I am an extrovert. That's really cool. Anyway, I've been 
actually have not gotten out very much because I've been home recovering from being sick. But uh, speaking of sickness, let's talk about health and get into our book in book club. Chapter 7 of The Healthy Programmer, Get Fit, Feel Better, and Keep Coding discusses an all-too-common problem that developers face. Wrist pain. Specifically, carpal tunnel syndrome, or CTS. It starts by telling the story of a classical guitar student named Ethan Kind, who had to leave school because of carpal tunnel syndrome. Uh, He's now a professional Alexander Technique instructor. The Alexander Technique is a technique used to help alleviate the pain from CTS and prevent burnout. Going along with the test-driven approach of this book, the first section is about testing your wrists. The author, Joe Kuttner, talks about Tenel's sign, a test for damage to the nerves in your wrist that pass through the carpal tunnel. He also discusses other tests used to determine carpal tunnel syndrome, such as reverse valence maneuver and the carpal compression test. All of these I learned in med school. They made sense. I I was reading through this going, wow, this is really accurate. Um, He definitely did his research on this. In the next section, he describes how compression of the median nerve, which passes through the carpal tunnel, a tunnel created by the carpal bones, causes carpal tunnel syndrome. Carpal tunnel syndrome occurs because when the wrist is overflexed or too much pressure is applied to the contents of the carpal tunnel, they are compressed and can cause inflammation. In the third section, Kuttner explains several exercises that you can use to help prevent pain and to work your wrist to relieve stress on the carpal tunnel. Now, Will and I have a friend who found relief using a type of Tai Chi exercises. He started off with Tai Chi that gave him some relief. There's a, they call it a sister martial art to Tai Chi called Bagua, which is more circular movements. And so moving the wrists and arms in circular patterns actually gave him a lot of relief. And he, I think, I know he's not still taking the classes, but he's still doing the exercises he learned from taking those classes. Yeah, when I was working with him, he was still doing it for sure. The final section before the retrospective discusses restricting movement with compression braces. This chapter has a lot of very good, very accurate information for developers who are suffering from wrist pain. One of the biggest takeaways is to adjust your posture and not overflex or overextend your wrist. While I was reading it, I got to thinking and like typing up this, I got to looking at the way that I sit and where my keyboard is in relation to the height of my chair and things like that. And I was like, yeah, I'm actually in a good position. I'm looking down at my hands right now as I'm talking and still there. Again, just like the other weeks, we will have a link to that in the show notes. Who's talking to us this week? Well, I grabbed a iTunes review from Gary The. It's G. E-R-I-T-H-E, so I'm assuming I'm pronouncing that right, Uh, saying amazing. As a junior developer, I learn a lot from this podcast. Thanks, Jerry. We appreciate that. We try to build our episodes so that everyone can take something from it. When we first started the show, I was definitely a newbie, like not even a junior developer yet. I was still learning. 
And I have grown in my career and the podcast has grown and we've grown as podcasters. We try to still stick to that being accessible to to everyone where junior developers can grab something, but where we also have content. As you progress in your career, you will still be able to glean things from the show. Well, we learn a lot too by explaining it. Oh, we do so much. Sometimes just going back over the the simpler concepts or the things you learn earlier on in your career can really help you later on just reviewing that and going, oh yeah, I remember this and can make your coding better. So thanks for the positive review. Send us an email to waterbottle at completedeveloperpodcast.com with your contact information because we've got a Complete Developer Water Bottle just for you. Guys, if you'd like your very own Complete Developer Water Bottle, leave us a review in iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all our episodes to Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We're also on Tumblr and Instagram. Or you can join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Your advertisement could be here. I know I've got a little bit of echo in the room, so I thought that might sound cool. We'll find out when this episode comes out. <laughs> it won't. No, you're right. <laughs> Y'all, if you like the show and you would like to advertise on here, send us an email to adverts at completedeveloperpodcast.com. We have short-term, long-term, and other sponsorship opportunities Reach out to us. Let us help you reach the people who you are serving. So done can mean a lot of different things depending on who you ask or when you ask them. If you ask a programmer if they're done with a feature, they may say yes because they've actually finished coding or they might say no because it is yet to be tested and they know there will still be adjustments that need to happen after the testing. Done is kind of treated like the way people talk about steak being done (laughs) rather than chicken. According to the Agile Alliance, the definition of done is something which the team agrees upon, such as a list of criteria, which must be met before a task or story is considered done. Defining done helps a team to understand where they are in the process of development. This helps to eliminate going back into a code pace because something didn't meet expectations. However, uh, if you overly obsess over the list of items, this can tend to come out as a bit of a counterproductive thing. You need to define the minimal criteria to meet the expectations of the business or the customer. Also, each story or feature may have its own specific criteria of what it needs in order to be considered done. Uh, That's a pretty normal thing. On the other hand, if the general definition is too loose, then it won't really be an effective measure because it's just like, oh, well, it's like saying with a steak, cook it. Yeah. They might burn it. It might be blue rare. Yeah. Might be both. (laughs) Had one like that in Vegas. That's weird. I ate it. You would. (laughs) In this episode, we're going to progress through several different stages of what it means to be done. These are generic definitions and could apply to a project, a feature, a story, or even just a task. Some of them, as we get into them, you'll notice, all right, this is more like at a project level. This is more at a task level, but they could kind of loosely be applied to any level. For each one, we'll discuss where you are in the process, sort of what it means to be done at this point. And then when you want to stop here or when you want to keep going. 
it is a progression. So we're not going to bounce around. It's going to move further and further along the lines. We're going to talk about finishing too soon. And then we'll hit the ideal place. And then we'll talk about spending way too long on a task or project. So the first one is, well, it's just an idea. Yeah, and a lot of people stop there. (laughs) (laughs) This is your starting place for building or working on something. Uh, It's more than a dream, but it's not quite a reality. Yeah, you've written it down, maybe even mapped it out, like what you're going to build. You have a blueprint. There are likely several diagrams and documents back before the holidays. So a couple of months ago, I went in on one of the days that I don't have to go into the office, but my business architect that I was working with asked me to come in and we mapped out our document management system on the whiteboard, like the current system we have. The current system, it was the API we're using to talk to our long-term storage was built for a specific purpose and it's sort of been overloaded for other things and needs to be rewritten. So he wanted to do that, but he said, before we do that, I want to map out the entire system, like all the document management we have. Let's map it all out. Let's plan this out so that we build it right this time. And I I really like that attitude uh, that he took towards it. You know, at this point, when we got done at the end of the day, we were at it's just an idea. Now, he was going to take that idea and go create a project for it and take it further. But for what we were planning on doing, we were done with the idea. Well, yeah. And if if you're doing like software architecture or you're in a uh, managerial role, like this is where things end for you, right? Like you kick an idea out there or if you're outsourcing work, Mm -hmm. a lot of times that's the way that happens. Yeah. I mean, it's very rare that you would stop here as a developer. Now, you might stop if after writing it down, you realize that the tools or the technology you need to build it don't exist or it's not possible. Yeah, unless you're Elon Musk and then you ignore that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have anything to say to that. Let's yeah. just like, yep. It's done. <laughs> there yeah. we go. In other cases, you might be given incomplete information. This could be from poor or missing acceptance criteria, lack of steps to reproduce a bug. That's an issue that I know Will and I have both faced. Whatever the case, if you don't have all the information needed, then you're done before you really ever get started. So it's almost like uh, working on stories without acceptance criteria. Yeah, Will knows this this story. Uh, I got pulled from a project, this was a couple years ago, to go help out on a team. They were struggling to meet their commitments. So I got pulled. My team was was hitting our stuff, go onto the team, and the first thing I noticed after our first stand-up, which was 30 minutes long for a team of five people, and that was the shortest stand-up they'd ever had, mind you. But after that was that the developers were accepting stories and like committing to stories with no acceptance criteria. And so they'd start developing acceptance criteria would be written and they'd have to go in and change it, uh, like what they had built in the process and like just massive scope creep. It was just, it was a pain. And that's when you need to go, no, we're stopping here. 
go back to the drawing board, figure this out, and then come back. Yeah, that's one of those things you kind of need to roll up a newspaper and yeah. pop them on the nose. Yeah. <laughs> bad BA, bad BA. Now, another thing may happen, Will was talking about earlier, where if your management, this is sort of where you stop and it, the process continues on, but you may perceive a need, you write it out, present it to the business and find out that they actually don't need what you're offering. You know, they may have other processes in place or plans for something else and not really need that. Yeah. Or it hasn't gone in front of the person who decides it. That's, that's crazy. We already have a thing. Yeah. And then a lot of times stopping here means you're putting it to the side for now. Right. Which is, I've seen this happen a lot. Yeah. That's, I mean, honestly, like the majority of stuff you spec out at a certain level, actually that's what happens to it. Yeah, it never actually gets out just because it's an idea and you want to throw it in front of somebody and that's the responsibility you have. It's not to deliver it. Yeah. Now, typically what this is, is a starting place for your project story or task. You're likely going to keep going from here. This is the planning phase. If you aren't planning out your stories and tasks, you really need to start doing that. Yeah, you don't want to just wing it. Um, pretty much on anything, but especially uh, software dev, that that just doesn't work. If you have a plan to go where you're going to go, you get there quicker. If you just go, I'm going to go somewhere, you're going to end up somewhere bad yeah. quickly. <laughs> you know? Like it just doesn't work. So let's talk about the next level up from this, and that is worthy of mama's fridge. So you just threw something together. Maybe it's your first attempt at a new technology or at creating a new language or working with a new language. It's brand new. Yeah, you're proud of it. Your mom is proud of it. But that's about it. Most of us have that simple application we always build when trying something new. Yeah. For me, it's a recipe manager. Yeah. Every time. All the way back to Access 2.0. Yeah. This would be Will's mama puts on her fridge. <laughs> she won't put anything on her fridge. So it's not even that good. Uh, <laughs> just, the metaphor kind of runs down there, but yeah. yeah. This is code you write just for yourself to see that you can get something working. It's your practice code. Typically has hard-coded values, magic strings all throughout it. Just today, I've been doing some training in uh, NoSQL databases and coding to to those with C-sharp. So I went through a tutorial today where I created some stuff that is literally just going to get trashed. I'm never going to use what I wrote, but it was to get the kind of practice and the the learn by doing stuff. Yeah, it's, it's more like you just want to see where the edges are and where yeah. just to get enough of a feel for, okay, do I really want to even go to the next level and try to do anything past this point. Yeah, this isn't meant for public consumption. It's for trying something new, trying things out to get to a place that they can be refined. Like, I remember one of Will's first attempts at making apple cider. Oh, yeah. It got oxygen. Yeah, I I came over to record, and he hands me a bottle. He's like, hey, try this and tell me what you think. I opened it up. Took one sniff of it and said, you got any fish and chips? Yeah. He made some great apple cider vinegar. Yeah. And that was, you know, I do a lot of experimentals and especially early on, that was a thing. And I didn't realize that the fermenter cap was getting air in there. Yeah. 
And so it got, you know, acetobacter in it. And then I got, yeah, a large quantity of vinegar. Yes. It was great. Hey, you know what? It went really well on fish and chips, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I'll give you that. Yeah. You dump out like a, I think it was a three gallon carboy of vinegar. It's like, wow. <laughs> hey, didn't I, um, cause my mom started like drinking apple cider vinegar. Didn't I give her some of that? You might have. Cause it, it wasn't processed and she was like, oh, this will be better for me. <laughs> I know you gave it to, uh, to some of our friends that like to go fishing a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so there are a few instances when you'll find it best to stop here. You may find out that what you want to do is too costly to build. That is too costly to do it correctly or to do it at scale. Or the time. Yeah. The time you're going to personally have to put in to get it working. So like if I try to do something in Erlang right now, it would be pretty awful. Like now it would it would eventually work, but I don't think I have the expertise to launch an app in that in a reasonable amount of time. Yeah. Now it's important to recognize this early. Because the cost can sneak up on you. Yeah, you don't want to like double down on this kind of stuff. Right. Also, it may not become evident that something isn't possible until you've started working on it. Yeah, you could have the idea and go, oh, yeah, this is cool. This is great. You get in there and realize, oh, my goodness, no, this is not possible. Or it's a really cool idea, but the technology isn't to that point yet. Yeah, or one of your early assumptions was wrong. Yes. You know, like I ran into some stuff with uh, C-sharp operator overloading with generic classes that had inheritance in the mix and things didn't work like I thought they did. Yeah. And I still got around it, but like if I had been a new developer in C-sharp, that would have stopped me cold and I probably would have done something else. Yeah, I see that. Another time to stop here is when building something as a learning experiment. You may be learning a new technique or a new language for part of a project, and there's no need to continue on refining once you learn the technology, and then you can take that and apply it to what you're going to do. Like I was saying, working with the NoSQL databases, or the example I have in here is homework assignments for class, which by the way, if you guys uh, really want to see some of my C++ code that I write for school, Apparently, get this, this is hilarious. We have to submit YouTube videos. And uh, I think most people probably just do a private video with and like share the link with the professor. But I'm making mine public because why, why not? not? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think you and I both do a lot of this. You know, we test out stuff mm -hmm. just in general, like outside of code, even. Yeah. Because you start thinking about the number of experiments that we both engage in just to try stuff. And, and we leave a lot of projects like this. Yeah, that's true. Then the last one is if you're writing code for textbooks or Stack Overflow, this is like the perfect place to stop. Well, you want to make sure you still have the memory leaks in there for Stack Overflow. <laughs> if it's on the Microsoft Stack, definitely <laughs> figure out how to get a memory leak in a man managed uh, language because you, you need that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, like that's a pet peeve of mine. I know, that's why I put it in there because I thought it'd be funny. Yeah. You know, this is, realistically, this is another place you are rarely going to stop or be done. It's a step on the way to being done. Like, you may be done with the experiment, with the, the learning, but then you're going to take that and apply it somewhere else. For more difficult tasks... This is the poorly written code that gets the task done, but needs to be refined. 
Right. And lots of organizations just add to it. That's how they stop it. Yeah. <laughs> so the next step here is the proof of concept, right? Like this is a little bit beyond what we were talking about in the previous step. This is, okay, we're going to test this thing out, but we're going to try to see how it reacts in different circumstances. We're going to push the envelope a little bit and try to find the spots that stop us cold. We're going to try to find, okay, where does this thing really shine? It's not just quick hack together stuff, but it's like, okay, here's how you really would do this, you know, in production. Here's how we can make it work for the team. Yeah. Those kind of things. See, a proof of concept is a pilot project or experiment that shows an idea as possible and feasible. This is the code that you show to other people to prove a thing is possible. The previous one was you're proving to yourself. This one is, all right, we've proved to ourselves. Now we want to refine it a bit more and make it presentable. Right. And it's just far more polished. Yeah. Is the main thing here. You've looked and tried to see what could go wrong and figured out how to mitigate that so that the rest of your team is not surprised and they can take your idea and run with it. Actually, you haven't done that. Those are in further steps. With a proof of concept? I mean, I'm talking like like at a general level, like you're making it where it's not going to explode spectacularly when they try it. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's probably the better way. Like, so it not, I wouldn't say completely polished, but it's yeah, it's more polished than the previous, and less polished than a real thing. Yeah, it's not written for publication or external use, other than to show, hey, this can be done. We can take this and make something with it, with the right effort and stuff. Since this is for showing the business side something is possible, they tend to be the cause of stopping here. You know, you may be waiting on a business decision on how to proceed. Maybe they want to go further but have higher priorities to finish first. There may be some time for market research to determine how best to refine what you've built. The other thing is the business or the team may not like the concept. You know, it's really frustrating when you work very hard on something only for the idea to be turned down. Yeah, or for them to like take it and run in a completely different direction sometimes. Yeah. That's not where you were going. This is why you don't go too far before showing a proof of concept. Now, once you do get the go-ahead, then you keep moving on from your POC. Never stop when management wants to publish your proof of concept in production. Right. Unless you uh, don't have your name attached to it and you're going somewhere else anyway. <laughs> you know, like, because you're going to get blamed when this blows up. Yeah. This, is, this sounds old. But if you're, you know, you threw something together with a, an access database to prove, hey, this is how this will work. Don't let them go, oh, hey, you built it. Let's use it. Because that's not built for production. It's built for demonstration. Right. And make that obvious. Yeah, you got to understand the difference between those two things and make sure that they do. Yeah. Now that you've proven it can be done, it's time to build it to be maintainable and scalable and all of that. Right. Once you've done that, if it's going to continue, aka you're not done, the next phase is to actually code the thing to completion. This is your first iteration of something that is production ready. So what that actually means is this is your first iteration of something that you aspire to have production ready because it won't be. Right. Uh, you will run into unknown unknowns. You've got the code written though. And this means that you've met all the requirements. It's coded to do everything that is required in the explicit spec 
which by the way, differs from reality. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And you've done stuff like, you know, moved your hard coded uh, values into variables and configs and those kind of things. Like you're not doing anything obviously dumb and unmaintainable. Yeah. Probably. It may not be the best, most maintainable, most scalable code out there, but it's decent. You've run it a couple of times to make sure that it's working. And there are a few times when it's wise to stop here. Yeah, and a, a perfect example of that is little bitty, uh, like little, what I like to call them is, you know, is craps, little personal crappy apps that you use for one thing yeah, or that your team uses for something. And there's no, the amount of times it would have to execute for it to be worth completely polishing is just astronomical. You know, it's something that's like, it moves this file once a week. Yeah. Very small things. Also, if it's internal and doesn't really need a lot of refining, you know, something I've worked on, I haven't completed it yet because it's a little bit of a side project, is a viewer for our API logs that are stored in the database. Yeah. Yeah, this is something that's not going to go through QA because even our internal customers are not going to see it. Other than developers, QA are going to see it. The only people looking at it are in the IT department. Or if you have like severe time constraints. In this case, it may not be fully done, but enough to get it out the door. And then like if it's like a major fix that has to get out the door right now, you code it to completion, you kick it out the door, and then you work on the refining and you get like a point one out within you know a reasonable amount of time. Yeah, I've also seen this approach with people that'll build stuff up to get venture capital mm-hmm. to pay for refining it. So you get a couple of guys in a yeah. garage somewhere, they build the thing up to a certain point, then they show it to an investor, the investor now pays them, they stop eating ramen and they finish the thing. Yeah, no, that I can believe. Yeah, yeah. That, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I think the the best way to explain this one is like most things in software development are ready, fire, aim. This is the first shot. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like you make sure it's not pointed somewhere where you're going to like blow a foot off, but it's not on target. Yeah. Yeah. In most cases, you're not going to want to stop here. It's very likely. Okay. It's more than likely. QA is going to find bugs or errors in what you've written. That's why they exist. Yeah. Well, also, if you're doing this because of time constraints, you've probably written it quickly. And they're going to exist. You haven't thoroughly tested it. If it's going to be a major part of business or an app that you'll want to keep testing and refining so that your changes don't break the application and cause loss of business, you need to keep going from here. Right. And, you know, at whatever level uh, this is, it's going to have to be refactored or refined before you really release it into the wild. You know, once stuff goes to the public, like the standards that even your internal team will put up with, like the public won't. Mm-hmm. I mean, like people get mad if you use the wrong icon for something, much less, oh, it crashed my OS. <laughs> you know, <laughs> although if, you know, if it crashes the OS, you could get a job in Redmond. <laughs> wow. You know, if it like destroys somebody's Bluetooth where their all their uh, headphones and speakers don't work for three months, you could get a job in Redmond. Just saying. Fix it, boys. Mine don't work right now. So so the next level of done is good enough for government work. 
<laughs> you really use that? Yes. Yes. You've gone above and beyond your first iteration and done some testing and refining at this point. You've unit tested the happy paths, but maybe not so much the unhappy ones. Yeah, and this is where you know it it does what it's supposed to do, and you have some degree of expectations on how it handles errors. So you're you're making it stable enough. To get it out there and nobody immediately screams at you and there's no torches and pitchforks. That's the idea. When all is going well under light load, your app rocks. And when it's going poorly, you're on vacation. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Funny how that works. The sad thing is this is considered a good stopping point for a lot of developers. Yeah, and a lot of organizations will push stuff out where if it does something unexpected, it's really unexpected. Yeah. Like, it's not just a, oh, it might do this. It's like, no, it might just drop the database. We don't really know. Hey, it's great if you work for the government. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. The government has a lot of QA process. Yeah, well, they got a lot of controls on stuff. It's like it, it's like government programs in the 90s <laughs> or just software in the 90s in general. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I wasn't in development back then, but... Yeah, it's a different set of expectations. It's slightly better. So a lot of developers will push stuff out when it works and they figure that QA is going to find anything that goes wrong, Yeah, which they should, but you do want to try to anticipate it just to cut back on the back and forth. But a lot of of devs do stop here. Now, if it is a small application or task that you know you're going to have full control over all the inputs and outputs. And the OS it's running on and the uh, runtime environment and the config. Yeah. And... uh, you know, you, you want to be able to stop meteor showers and just say that that's not happening. And yeah, so in other words, if you're a megalomaniac and you believe yeah. that you got control of the situation, you're good here. You know that no one will ever touch this area of the code base again. You know, this may be a small patch in a very seldom used area of the code. Right. This is like a false start in racing. This is the you know, false stopping point that gets a lot of people in trouble. So if there's any chance that this code will ever be touched by another process or developer, you need to keep testing and refining so that it doesn't break. Testing only the happy path is not being thorough in your job as a developer. It's almost like, if you think about this whole thing, the way this works, like you have less responsibility earlier on and you get more responsibility later. Yeah. And you're you're kind of at that, at that peak point where you can really do a lot of damage at this phase of done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you need to plan for and test for as many possibilities as you can think of a user doing and then expect them to do something completely different. Yeah. You know, I will say that there are cases where this does kind of fit a lot of times. Like if it's a very short-lived patch Mm-hmm. that's only for, hey, between version 2.2 and version 2.3 of this app that was only at version 2.2 for three months and there's 15 users and we know who they are, then this might be okay. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like a small patch, seldom used area, that kind of stuff. Finite amount of inputs. Yeah. So the next step up in the gradients of done is refined but not quite Emily Post refined. For those of you that don't know, Emily Post is well known for her book on etiquette. 
Yeah, which of course you drop the ball on because you're, the next phrase is you've unit tested the snot out of what you built, which I'm sure Emily oh. Bose would love, you oh. know, watching snot come out of things. I did not drop the ball on that at all. That is on purpose. Okay. Well, <laughs> he threw the ball down the because the ball you're, hit. You're not, you're not quite Emily Post refined. Ah, uh, I got you. Yeah. So this is a little bit better. This is where the happy and all the easily conceivable unhappy paths are tested. Yeah. You're going to have some error handling in place for unexpected outages or inputs, but you really haven't thought about optimizing the code except where it's really obvious. Yeah. Now, for many, this is a good place to consider a task or project completed. Right. It's a cheap contractor done. Stop here when you need to balance doing things right with time constraints. So like Will said, cheap contractor done. Typically, developers who stop here know they could do more, but they have to move on to other tasks. Yeah. They may want to do more, but are pushed by management or outside influences to move on. Yeah, or they don't want to be broke. Like it's a fixed bid contract for, you know, 500 bucks, which you should Mm -hmm. never take one that low, by the way. But um, if you Mm do, and all of a sudden you're five hours in, you need to kind of be wrapping this critter up and getting it out of here, right? Like you can't go 30 hours and live in America at 500 bucks. Like that's bad. Management will usually think this is a good place to stop as well. Yeah. Unless they are recently out of development or have kept up with it, they have likely lost that connection to why you want these good patterns in your optimized code. Yeah, and you know the thing is, is they don't really feel the pain of the mistakes, especially if they get a promotion and then they move on. By the time this mistake comes back around, it doesn't hurt them. Yeah. So, you know, refactoring is is a constant process and you should always be refining your code when you're in there. And as you grow, you'll get better and you'll get more efficient at cleaning stuff like this up. You're also going to want to update your existing code to meet better standards. Um, and that means updating your testing. Yeah. So sometimes you'll find yourself stopping here, you know, just simply because, you know, that's the way it is. But you probably are going to want to go to the next level a lot of the time, and you would probably prefer a job that lets you. Yeah. So speaking of the the next level, this is aptly named Emily Post Refined or Making Uncle Bob Proud. Now, it wasn't very long ago that we had Uncle Bob Martin on the show talking about clean code, clean architecture, all these sorts of things. So when I was writing this outline, I threw that in here. Like I, it was originally titled Emily Post Refined. And as I started writing the, the details under this point, I thought, man, this would really make Uncle Bob proud. So your code could be textbook, except that it works and it doesn't leak memory. And it doesn't have weird <laughs> naming conventions. Yes. It's unit tested, load tested, integration tested with other systems. You are using proper design patterns, or you may have refactored areas to use them the right way. Your best practices, accepted standards, either industry or company have been implemented in your code. This is like the ideal. Yeah, for most developers. 
you probably do want to stop here. Um, if you do a whole lot more, you run the risk of overcomplicating or even breaking the code. You know, I worked with some guys that were just, you know, like they weren't developers, they were just complicators. Mm -hmm. It was design pattern soup. I, I remember at one point having to return an ex or throw an exception out of a web service so that I could add data to what was coming back in a payload. Yeah. Like that was the only way I could get data back to the other end because it was so complicated from end to end. And that's what happens when you really take it past this point mm -hmm. for the most part. The idea is to get to balance. This is like probably 95 to 98% of the time, this is where you want to stop. Yeah, You've got a good balance here and it's just time to let this baby fly. Now, there are a few scenarios where you would want to keep going. You know, 3 to 5% of the time, like you're writing a database server yeah. <laughs> or space shuttle software. You know, something where the failure mode is catastrophic. Yes. Or where a lot of crap is going on. So like you're doing an operating system. You're supposed to test before you push this out. Yeah. We don't know anybody that does that, but it's a good thought. I'm sorry. I'm just going to like beat on them for the next three weeks after this. Like I'm tired of not being able to listen to music. That's all right. Last week I, I nailed on them. So you, you rail on them this week. Yeah. You can't be too careful It's a, if it's a system that will affect whether people live or die. Yeah, and that includes financial systems, right? Like, yeah. if they're complex enough, they can still kill people. Yeah, It's just, like, by ruining lives. Mm -hmm. You really do have to be really careful about this stuff and, you know, take extra care in the development phase and have a little bit more due diligence. Now, less drastic, but still very important, is when it doesn't meet the business needs. Like you can have all the best code and it can do exactly what it's supposed to do, perfectly tested, all your patterns just right, not too many, not too few, and it not meet the needs of the business. Right. And poor acceptance criteria ultimately destroy code quality most of the time because usually what happens is you now have to rapidly hack some crap in yeah. to meet a deadline and all your good coding goes out the window. Yeah, a few years ago, I worked on a project. The people they put as stakeholders and the product owner, their job was specifically concerned about data intake. So all our acceptance criteria, all our stories were about getting the data in. Now, mind you, the thing we were doing was taking a mailed-in form and putting it online and adding kind of automating some of the stuff that was like redundant things that they had to do a lot of. But what we didn't know until we got almost done with the project was that the primary focus of the business was around reports. New stuff coming in was a very small component of it. It's just that the people who had the free time to work with us were the ones who were doing the new stuff coming in because there wasn't a whole lot of it. So we never talked to anyone else in the business and didn't know that you know, we, we just got like the tip of the iceberg and didn't see what happened once the data came in. And it was like this huge thing of like all this stuff. And we're like, oh, we just spent four months where we could have done this in a month spend a lot less time making it a lot less dynamic and stuff, bringing things in and spend a lot of time on the reports. Yeah. That happens. And 
I really don't think it's anyone's fault. I mean, maybe you could blame upper management for not foreseeing this, but... Well, and of course, you do when they're not in the room anyway, right? Yeah. Well, even they were just like, we didn't think about that. And it's just something that you don't think that way because we didn't even know about it. And the people who we were talking to, they knew a little bit. They knew some of the reports, but it wasn't until we were done with the intake stuff. They're like, all right, now what do we do with the data once it's in there? Well, we got this one report that you told us you needed. And we find out, oh, no, their whole business relies on all these other reports. Yep. It added another six months to that project. We eventually got it done and got them what they needed, but we could have designed it a lot better had we known that going into it. And that happens. Yep. Like we had really great, we were doing best practices. We were using design patterns. It was really well-written code, but it did not meet their needs. So the next level, um, and this you know meets a personal need of mine, it's not over till QA is tired. <laughs> like when QA is done with a bug, like they don't want to look at it ever again. You know, there's people that that's their definition of done. You know, this is going above and beyond and beyond what you want to do. Yeah. It may be that QA thinks that they are the ones making the business decisions. And sometimes they are. <laughs> yeah. Our QA will send stuff back that's, uh, you know, a matter of opinion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a discussion on that. And that's kind of common. That said, I mean, I do really agree with them on most things. So it's actually okay. They're not like, you know, because I've worked with QA people that would send stuff back that's like, oh, you're using the wrong font here and there's no guidelines. Yeah. It's like, oh, they just don't like it. Yeah. I have worked with QA where it's like they will send stuff back and it's a matter of opinion. But I'm like, you know, you're you're right. I didn't think about it that way. Yeah. And then there's other times where it's like they'll send stuff back and it's like, uh, that's not in the acceptance criteria. Yeah, or that's not how the client's using it. Like you didn't even, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. That's that's my favorite. Um, and I've had jobs like that. I think you and I both have really dealt with QA folks that were like this at different points. Yeah. Right. Where they felt like they should have more control than they should. They like they had the control that the engineers should have had. Yeah. Like they wanted to be business architects. Yeah. And they were just in the wrong role. Yeah. And some of them would have been great. Like I have worked with a couple of QA people who they would make great business architects because they were able to talk to the customer and like really be like, all right, well, I know you're saying this, but have you considered like when people come into it this way or that? And they would make great business architects. Yeah. But that's not the role of QA. The other thing is there could be differences in interpreting acceptance criteria or what is needed. I mean, no, this is one that you and I both have complained about a lot. (laughs) Yeah. And that happens just about everywhere, right? Yeah. And it's even more fun when your QA is actually the product owner. Oh, yeah. Or the business owner, for that matter. Like the guy that signs your paycheck. Oh, this isn't right. But we did exactly what you said. Yeah. That's a fun spot to be. I mean, I think like this phase really ends, you know, it's done when you are at a point where you can't stand it anymore. Yeah. What you got to do here is just start by talking to your QA about the items that are not bugs. I know we had a QA that uh, I no longer work with, but we had to just sit down with this person and tell them, hey, these are not bugs and we're not going to address them. Yeah. We created like a review process where it would go through the developers and developers would be like, that's not a bug. That's an opinion. And like send it back to QA because we 
it, we kept getting opinions that didn't even match what the business people wanted because we would like make the change and then the business would be like, well, that's not what I wanted. Yeah. And that what they wanted was what was originally there. Yeah. And it's very, very frustrating when you find yourself in that situation. Mm. QA is also not always in the wrong, which is really hard to deal with for a while until you get used to it. And then you realize that their role is to make you better. Yeah. But like it takes a minute for that to really sink into your head in your career that like you're really reliant on your QA people to actually provide the results. And you're not done if a bunch of bugs are still in your code or if, you know, it's got issues that make it where it's not usable. Like you're just not. The other thing is a lot of times they do have a really good understanding of the business process because they're in more of those conversations. Because a lot of times, you know, they're like halfway UX people or they're halfway you know, DBAs or they're halfway, you know, depending on what your business focus is, they tend to kind of like the QA person may fall out of a different role where they had more knowledge. And that happens all the time. So you got to be really careful and consider that they could be right about what the business wants because they could be right about what the business wants and then you could be a jerk. Yeah. Just be polite when you're calling them out on, you know, matters of opinion because like Will said, they may be right. And if this is the case, then you're not done and you need to adjust because as much as we would like to think it's about just writing code, it's not about writing code. It's about solving problems. Yeah, it's almost not about writing code. Yeah. If you're not solving the problem, then you're not doing a good job. Well, I mean, that's like the conversation we had with Uncle Bob, yeah. right? Like, it's just like, you know, the longer I go, the less I think that what I do is about coding at all. Yeah, it's very true. You know, it's like it's like saying it's about typing. Mm-hmm. Like that's not really on point either. It's a thing I do in the process. Yeah. So speaking of the process, uh, let's talk about the never-ending calculator, <laughs> which is the final phase of the way that this works. And this is one when you are beach and you're learning to use modern development tools and you take an idea and you beat it to death. Like you just keep tinkering with the same thing. <laughs> An idea becomes a passion, and then a passion becomes an obsession with this. Yeah, and this is, uh, you know, where you tinker with something to the point where you're you're never going to really get it done, and you're not learning other things, or you're not moving forward. Yeah. This is really a common pattern. Like, I mean, I give you crap about the calculator thing. Yeah. But the reason I gave you crap is I didn't want you to be one of these... Uh, once you get to be a, like a mid-level developer where you decide that you're going to build some system and you just play with that and you don't ever get anywhere or make anything useful. Like I worked with a guy that was trying to make his own database engine. That's cool. Which is nice, but he was trying to do it on the clock. Ugh. Instead of... And if that's not what you're being paid for. Using SQL. Yeah, and it was just, whoa. You can't have that. Now, if that's your job, yeah, that's different. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, is stuff like this, you probably should have stopped a while back. You're like really, really over polishing this. Yeah. Sometimes it tends to, you know, one thing I've also seen people do this on is projects that's going to be their public GitHub repository. Yeah. And they're worried that they're, that the world is going to see it and go, oh, you know, you could have done it this other way that's 0.05% faster and you're just a big dummy. Well, And so, like, I think there's some anxiety sometimes in this, too, once you're at a certain level. There is also, you know, one thing I think about is, 
when I was about to start looking for a, I don't want to say a real job because apprenticing with you was real work. Like we, I worked on projects for clients, but like when I was looking for my first developer job outside of apprenticing, right? You told me probably about six months before I started looking that I was ready and I didn't feel ready. Yeah. And I waited and I kept working on stuff and I kept building things. And then I go out there and I, you know, I got a job. Then we hired on another junior developer who was right out of school. She was a great developer, but she was literally at the place I was when you told me I was ready to go. Yeah. And the thing is, is that extra time really didn't do you as much good as it could have had you gone on and gone. And that's why I was pushing you. Like, it's really easy to get stuck on local Optima. On stuff like you, you take a piece of code and you're like, oh, I made it, you know, O of log in versus, you know, O in cubed. That's great. But mm-hmm. there's like at most three data records coming in here and it's used yeah. once a year. Yeah. I mean, it's really easy to get into the weeds. Yeah. And you lose track of time, end up spending all day on something that's just barely ever used. Now, this is something that mid level developers have to especially watch out for in their code. There's a tendency to overcomplicate as we learn to write more complex patterns and syntax. Yeah. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the guy that gets a black belt Mm -hmm. and then tries to do like the crazy wrist lock on somebody when all he really needed to do is just punch him in the face. Yeah. (laughs) Like like old masters, that's what they'll do. They'll just do some little simple thing and you fall down. Yeah. Yeah. And there's always the guy that wants to be this gymnastic god of weapons and do something that looks really cool. And it's like, but it didn't work. (laughs) Yeah. It's always, it's around that mid-level when you start, like, there is a time and a place to use those more complex patterns. Right. I think as senior developers aren't immune to it. No. It's just typically they don't get the excitement about the complexity because they're used to it. Well, and they've had to clean up a lot of it. Yeah. Usually their own. (laughs) Right. You know, like I built a system that was supposed to import uh, images from social media sites. And instead of making separate ones for each thing, I made a system that was supposed to handle all of them. Yeah. That did not work. It went very, very badly because it was all (laughs) different. And so you're trying to generalize something that isn't general. Mm -hmm. It's like I want to make something that can pump water and also... Uh, pump air and also extrude chocolate. Mm-hmm. It's not the same system. Yeah. Like it might have a few of the same parts, but it just doesn't work that way. Now, on the other hand, I've had conversations with junior developers who are trying to sound more advanced, where it's like, well, I just don't think that everything needs to be generalized. I'm like, in this case, generalization makes sense. And here's why. I felt bad because I did have to kind of put the person. I don't want to say put the person in their place, but just be like, look, there's a reason for it here. You don't know what, like, I don't want to say you don't know what you're talking about, but it's more like you're saying that to sound more senior than you are. Yeah, it's like virtue signaling or intelligence signaling. It's, uh, you know, there's almost like the, the group of people that just has to push their glasses up on their nose and go, well, actually. Yeah. And those are never the people that have the right answer. No. Also, you may find yourself over-optimizing to the point you're spending hours of development time in order to save seconds of processing per year. Yeah. Um, and I've seen people use pointers in C-sharp for this. Yeah. 
I think I've used pointers twice yeah. in it in C sharp. Now C plus yeah. plus that's a whole nother or Delphi, that's a whole nother thing. But. Oh yeah. But at that point, optimization becomes an anti-pattern. Yeah. It's almost like the guy that over-optimizes his life and then doesn't live. Mm-hmm. It's very rare. Occasionally, you may want to continue here. Maybe if you want to torture yourself or your mentor with too many math functions, you do that. Or if you're working on a fun project or educational project and you're just really trying to hammer in a concept. Uh, do you remember when I was trying to understand link queries, specifically um, extension method link? Yeah. And do things in one line. And I was just hammering that concept in and I was like overdoing it. And some of those lines, it's like, you know, uh, there are vertical scroll bars on your editor, bruh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I remember that. That was... Uh, but I got that concept. And then when I had to use it, production code wasn't that crazy. Right. And I did some stuff like this. I made a system for being able to put additional metadata on objects, but not use an attribute in C Sharp. So like I had a framework that I built for that. And I got the code somewhere. And I got wow. way down in the weeds on expression trees and all that stuff. And it's it was fun. Yeah. Never really used it, but it taught me a lot. Yeah, that makes sense. Yes, these are fun, lighthearted ways of thinking about the serious topic of when to stop working on something. It can be hard to stop when you know there is more that can be done. On the other hand, sometimes you're just done with the task and have too much on your plate to give it the attention it needs. Figure out where your coding practices fall and make an effort to improve them in whichever direction they need to go. That pretty much wraps us up. Before we close everything out, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? I guess my thing is, is with all of these, uh, the thing that I would distill this down to is don't start something until you know what the end is. Um, or what that looks like. Now, th- it's going to change as you go, right? But your starting intent should be, okay, I'm going to do this until it's at this point. Like I know what the quality is supposed to be, or I know what the result should be, or I know what the payoff is, something like that. If you just start doing stuff and just wing it, you'll probably never get to the end. It just, it makes your decisions smarter if you begin with the idea of what the end should be in your head. So do that. That's all I got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.